And uh, y'all know when I come back from sabbatical refreshed, I'm usually fired up. I'm not sure if y'all are. Last time I came back from sabbatical, we entered a series called The Supernatural Storyline of the Bible. And what was incredible about that series is that the Lord gave us a bunch of information about the Bible that we hadn't seen before. Maybe some aspects we'd seen, we've read from good theologians and people that pointed things out to us, but... In large part, that that series was an inundation of biblical information that many of of us had not seen, and we were affected by that. Many people were concerned, like, man, I don't want this series to end. What's going to be next? What are we going to do? That's encouraging. But it's easy to process a series and be affected by all the information that we've heard. People have their favorite messages, their favorite moments. Oh, to take possession of the land, the, the blood, the incorruptible blood. And, and they have different sermons that affected them, and that's good. But the concern with a series like that is that we love the information, but we assume application. So we assume that because we listened, we liked, and agreed, that we're affected in our lives. It was good information. It was biblical information. But biblical information that does not turn into transformation is an eternal hallucination. It's not real. It's only real for those who are transformed by the information. We've all heard this. Many people have professed to believe, did altar calls, responded to the gospel, grew up in the church. But today, that's the only claim they have to being a Christian. Well, I grew up in the church, so I'm, so what? Finish the sentence. Eternal hallucinations are not maturation. And sadly, many believers are satisfied with living a life of hallucination rather than transformation. So we need to make sure we, those of us who are here, committed here, if you're a guest, thank you. This your, you've been here before me, your first time seeing me, glad to meet you. We'll definitely love to talk to you next week. Because <laughs> I'm not ashamed, and my church knows I'm not ashamed to tell you that after this service, I'm going to the game. We need to understand the supernatural storyline and turn it into the supernatural lifeline. Now that we understand the significance of this storyline, now that we processed or still processing in many ways the information, we have to turn it into transformation. It's of grave importance. And here's one of the main reasons why. James 3.1. James 3.1 says this. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, when you read this passage, you rightly assume 
and discern that it's saying that those who teach, like myself, pastors, teachers, are going to be judged with greater strictness. It's a warning. James was warning people in that church, y'all better be careful. Everybody wants to teach and be in front of everybody and be dynamic and be loved and accepted. But when you stand before God, everything you taught would be the measurement of who you are to him. So James was saying, better be careful. Not everybody should presume to be teachers. We're going to be judged with a stricter judgment. And the reason being is because, look, God gave you the knowledge. You're supposed to live it. How dare you teach these people and then not live it? I didn't just give you the grace to understand the word. I gave you the grace to apply it. And so I'm going to be judged with greater strictness than all of you. This is a sobering passage. For me personally, this is the scariest verse in the Bible, not Matthew 7. Matthew 7 doesn't scare me. This does. We who teach will be judged with greater strictness. But there's something in this passage that's not just for teachers. It should sober all believers, not just those of us who teach. You are not off the hook. Let's look at the passage again, the verse again. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. You all are implicated in this verse. Where? One word. Greater. Greater. The key word in this verse is greater. You who teach will be judged with greater strictness. But all who don't teach will be judged with strictness. So mine will be greater strictness, but you will be judged with strictness. God is not playing. It's not going to be a, an eternal pat on the back. I don't know who's going to hear, well done, that good and faithful servant. But I'm not worried about that being me. I just want to make it. All people, I don't know what you think about that day and what it's going to be like, but greater strictness means there's going to be a strictness for all who are not teachers. So it's imperative that we just don't love information, that we work to make it transformation. And it doesn't just happen because we like it. I'm so glad for that series. But if that series doesn't make us more mature, then what good did it do for any of us? We're going to be judged with strictness. So we're going to begin a new series today using the information that we learned to create transformation. We want maturation, not hallucination. No one is impressed with you pretending to be godly, mature. What's the point of it? It blows my mind when I hear these stories about pastors who are living one way publicly and then behind it. I don't understand. Like, have we all forgotten that none of us are going to judge any of us when it matters? No one's going to be sitting in eternity, and I'm looking at you like, all right, let's open the book. The people around you whom you're worried about what they think of you, 
whom you don't want to share things because you don't want to look like you have struggles, none of those people are going to be the one that determines whether your name is in the book of life. I don't understand how anyone who presumes to be a teacher forgets that one day you're going to stand in front of the teacher. I think about this every day. I still fail in many ways, but not in ways that I could. We're going to do a series that's taken from a phrase that I used at the end of the last series. In fact, Julie's one of Julie's favorite phrases I've used. This series is going to be a succinct phrase that helps us remember the significance of spiritual warfare. And to remember that we have a responsibility to take all biblical information and turn it into transformation. So today we get up a, seri a series called Believe Until You Leave. What must you believe until you leave? And by leave, I mean when you die. What we must believe until we leave. While spiritual warfare can be physical, like illnesses, mental health disorders, and so forth, those things are real. We saw Jesus heal people that said demons were doing things to people, and we saw that. But largely, Satan attacks what we believe because he knows that what we believe will determine how we behave. So here's the first truth that you must believe until you leave. 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 10. Paul says this, you, however, talking to Timothy, his son in the faith, young pastor. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Verse 12 is our first truth. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. This is God's word. If anyone in this room who wants to be a Christian, who professes to be a Christian, believes that you will get there without any persecution, then you believe a Christless Christianity. Indeed, all, in the Greek, all means all. <laughs> any person who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Contextually, let's go just contextually. Contextually, here's what Paul means. By context, I mean every time you read the Bible, it's written in a context. Only passages like Proverbs, maybe Solomon, uh, some Psalms, they're written in sort of, you could take a verse and just extrapolate it on its own, but most of the Bible has a context, written for a purpose, to a people and so forth. So here's the context that Paul's writing, and he mentions it. He says, you... You heard about what happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. So he's, you go back to Acts 14, right? Acts 14, verses 21 and 22. This is Luke 
writing about his journeys traveling with Paul. And when Paul wrote this to Timothy, Paul's referring to what happened here. There's two verses we're going to read. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to come, continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. This is what Paul's talking about. He was opposed at all these places, these cities, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra. And so he's teaching, he's strengthening the souls of the disciples, believers, like you and I, strengthening their souls, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So this is what his discipleship is. This is how he's encouraging them. He's encouraging them that, listen, there's going to be a lot of tribulations to get to eternity. This is not the Christianity of today. The Christianity of today is, I didn't like what was said, so I'm leaving. I don't like this music, so I'm leaving. I got offended in church, so now it's church hurt, so I'm out. I don't trust people because one person betrayed me 10 years ago. Newsflash. Trauma is the norm, not the exception. But today, the possibility of persecution is like, nope, no way. Paul was encouraging them that many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Saying, look, you believe you got joy, hold on to that. Because it's going to be challenged. You're going to be persecuted. The context is he's talking about evangelism. And we know why there's persecution. Because evangelism is spiritual warfare. We are taking possession of the land. Human beings are made from the land. God made us from the land in Genesis 2. So people are the land. So in the New Testament, we take possession of the land like the Israelites did. And as we talked about, we just pour a little salt. Mike wonderfully said that in his first three sermons. But is that information transformation for you? Because I remember when Mike asked how many people would want to see something like Alpha would be a part of that and serve in that. I couldn't see the hands that were raised on the camera, but when he told me last Wednesday, it wasn't that many. So everyone is excited about the information of preaching the gospel and reaching others. But then when it comes, what are you willing to sacrifice? What transformation is going to happen in your life? <laughs> and then we laugh and joke it off like it's funny. I don't think God's laughing. Principally, contextually, Paul was saying persecution is going to come with live a godly life, and he equates godliness with evangelism. Go figure that. In his mind, I'm being persecuted for living godly, and I'm, the godliness is I'm sharing the gospel with other people. You know Jesus wasn't killed because he was a good person, right? Jesus was killed because he told people, you're not good enough. Contextually, it's evangelism. 
Principally, we can see this a little bit differently. Principally, the reality is, is that he said in Acts 14, through many trials and tri- through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Meaning, you believe, you have joy, praise God. And you hold on to that. You hold on to the truths of what he says will come to those who make it to the end. Because in this life, it's going to be challenging. We're going to be persecuted on multiple levels. So he says in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If that's you, you signed up for it. Doesn't mean you like it. I tell the Lord all the time, hey, Lord, you wow. I talk to him for real. I don't be all, well, Father, in the name of the holy, eternal son of God. Man, I'm just talking to the Lord straight up and down. I'll just be like, wow, Lord, this is wild right now. Like, you know, this is like unnecessary for real, to be honest. Why is this how? I'll say that. Listen, man, the Lord, people were angry at the Lord in the, New Te- in the Old Testament. In the Psalms, they were mad. Lord, where are you, God? Well, you've forgotten me. You've done all these things. And the Lord put them in his word. He's not worried about our challenges with him and what he does. He's not concerned about that. He welcomes that. He's the father. My kids have the free, the green light to tell me ways that I've offended them and did things wrong. Mm-hmm. Train my kids to be like, son, if I'm wrong, you got to tell me. You correct me and your mom. Now, you got to have the right time. Don't correct me in the midst of a... That's not what this sermon's about today. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How many of you have known this verse a lot? Familiar with this verse? Okay, good. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why does he say a godly life in Christ Jesus? He could have said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. We would have got the same thing, right? I would have understood what he meant. Yeah. If you, why does he say in Christ Jesus, though? What are you telling us? In Christ Jesus? Like, if you want to live a godly life, okay, cool. But he said, in Christ Jesus, not a godly life, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, why the distinction? Because every religion has a form of godliness. Every religion. How many religions do you know, genuine religions, not some made up stuff from a small town in the backwards streets? I'm talking about, I ain't talking about. Something that makes the news real quick because they just wilding. I ain't talking about the Manson family religion, right? Where you just going around. I'm talking about most modern religions, science, atheism, all of them want to be a good person. There's not a religion that doesn't require some kind of sacrifice. Some type of doing good to other people. All religions have a form of godliness. There are moralistic standards that please the God of that religion, whatever it is. Atheists don't believe enough in it. Why do you want to be a good person, fam? What's the point then? Why do you, what's the point of being a good person? Like, what, why are you trying to be a good person? If there's no God, there's no nothing, everything just came from, we just evolved, and why aren't you, why aren't you doing wild stuff? Consequences, maybe. But most people desire to be a good person. 
Most religions have this element. But why do you even care about being a good person? They don't want to be godly in Christ Jesus. They want to be a good person. And believe it or not, that's satanic. We talked about this last time. It's wild that God created us in his image. And Satan, even though he's trying to destroy the image of God, Satan can't just create. We think of Satan as wanting to blow everything up and nuclear war and you walk outside and everybody's shooting and everybody's ODing on drugs and sex everywhere. And that's how we think Satan's operating. And so when we don't see that, we think, OK, things are pretty good because we're thinking moralistically. But Satan cannot create, cannot force people to do that because people, whether they're believers or not, are still made in God's image. And the desires that God put in them still exist, even if they reject God. So people, even though they don't know why, they want to be a good person. They have a desire. So Satan doesn't create religions of destruction. He creates religions of distraction. So now I'm a good person. I'm moral. But Satan's moralistic. Y'all remember this from the last series, 2 Corinthians 11. 13 through 15, Paul is talking about these false apostles that are pretending and teaching people. People have, are accepting a different spirit. Remember that? And Paul says this, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. They're deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Satan has to disguise himself as an angel of light, meaning looking like this is a good thing because he knows that God created people with a even a distant desire to be good because we're made in his image. So even people that will never believe in the Lord will still measure themselves by some standard of goodness. How many times have you heard someone reject God because, well, I'm a good person? (laughs) But godliness outside of Jesus Christ is just morality. And moralism by itself says I'm good enough to keep God's standards on my own. So I don't need to believe in your God. Like, I'm, okay, that's fine for you. I don't need to believe that. I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. Well, how good is good enough, though? Good enough for what? I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm just saying you're not good enough. Godliness that is not in Christ or motivated by faith in Christ is essentially being back in the Garden of Eden like Eve and determining good and evil on your own. That's what moralism is. It's I determine what good and evil is. It's a satanic righteousness. As I determine good and evil, I'm all. I have my own standards. I'm spiritual. What spirit? There's a lot of them. There's only one that matters. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's godliness in Christ, not godliness instead of Christ. 
It's godliness approved by God, not godliness that removes God. Let me tell you one of the main reasons why believing this is more important than ever in this current collective conscience of American culture and the current climate in the American evangelical church. Let me tell you why this is important. Some of y'all know I'm on YouTube. I make videos, and I often have a, when I talk about things politically, I, I attack the left and the right. I'm not Democrat or Republican. I'm Christican. I'm a fear of the Lordian, right? And people get mad at that. How could you tell people to? I personally don't think there's any real appropriate answer for us on that level. So I tell people, look, vote your conscience. Just don't lose your conscience for a vote. But I was in the back and forth. I did a video about Larry Elder, this a conservative black dude, went on The Breakfast Club, which is a far left uh, morning talk show. And all these people were like, Larry Elder destroyed The Breakfast Club. And in some senses, he did. But there were some things that I pushed back on. He made some statements about conservatives that were misleading. So I made a video about it, two of them. <laughs> and they got a lot of volume. And I was going back and forth with a few people, but there was one guy who was mad at me for saying that in any way, shape, or form that the left could be even considered something that anyone could vote for. And he said this to me. Well, we were going back and forth in the comment section, which is weird to me, because it's like a comment section. Why is it so serious for you? We gotta go back and forth in the comment section. But I'm not soft, so I'm not gonna race your comment, but I ain't gonna let your comment stand either, right? It's the rock, baby. We ain't afraid over here. So it was it wasn't mean spirit, it was just like, hey bro, listen, I was trying to use language to make them so I'm not offended by you, like I'm not really tripping. You seem to be. And he said this, he said, Well, I don't want my daughter. You know, as a person of faith, I, don't want, I want my daughter to grow up in a country where, where she can exercise her faith and, and, and not have to give in, bend down to the standards of the left. And he was naming all this stuff. And I replied and said, bro, I got three sons. I want my kids to grow up in a country, too, that doesn't attack them for their faith. But the Bible says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. So I'm trying to prepare myself for what God says, not complain about what the left does. I'm not worried about that. Whoever's who persecution is coming if you are a believer, not if you're a believer with a particular political bent. He didn't respond back. He just gave me a thumbs up. Because he can't argue with the word. See, I ain't telling you how I feel. I don't need to get into all that. Mm -hmm. This is the verse where I'm coming from. Oh, you, hey, brother, hey, good verses, man. I can't argue with that. This is what the word says. If you want to be godly, you're going to be persecuted. So if that persecution comes from one political side or another or none of them, it is what it is. I want my kids to be ready for all of it, not complaining about some of it. And I want the same for this church. So here's the million-dollar question. Why is godliness in Christ connected to persecution? This is what the word says. Why is godliness in Christ connected to persecution? 
Wouldn't we love it if we could just be godly and have no problems in this life? <laughs> and then get to eternity and just be chilling. Sadly, that's what many people are upset about. All the hubbub about who this and who that is all because I don't want to suffer. And if these people are in control, I'm going to suffer more than if these people are. I don't want to be persecuted. Neither do I, but I accept it because I signed up for it. Because I'm trying to be godly. So why is it connected to persecution? No. Three answers. First, because persecution was what Jesus chose. He chose persecution. All the ways that Jesus could have, that was incredible, bro. <laughs> All the ways that Jesus could have chosen to bring about salvation. He chose the most traumatic means to do it. So when Satan was like, hey, look, just come down, jump off the mountain, and the angels will help jump off the top of the temple, and they'll help you. He could have done that. People would have sung, like, oh, my God, thank you. I was about asking for that. Forgot to bring my towel. I was in a rush because I'm excited for the game. <laughs> but I'm hype. I'm home. My blood pressure's running. Sweating, sitting down and sweating. I'm hype. My body feels like I'm, I'm in the ring right now. Jesus chose persecution. This is what he said in John 10, beginning of verse 14, 14 through 18. Here's what Jesus said in John 10. Remember this, because you guys know your Bibles. Remember this? If you don't, I'm not shaming you. I don't even know that you don't know your Bible, so don't judge me and be like I'm church hurt because the pastor said that. I'm just saying, remember this, right? I got to take it, huh, Chris? He says this in verse 14 of John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one, no one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. Let me tell you about this important statement, because you have some of the greatest atheists in the world and people who disagree with Christianity, they'll say stuff like, it's called cosmic child abuse. That God would, that God would kill his son and, and brutally all this stuff. They call it cosmic child abuse. That's what people say. You can laugh, laugh if you want to, but there are people who have, whose stances are against your faith, who've written books and who dialogue and sometimes outsmart other believers because it doesn't make sense that God would kill his own son. They would say, I wouldn't kill my own son. Why would God do that to his own son? I would politely say, well, Jesus said he did it himself. Jesus said, I lay down my own life. No one said, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. So there's no cosmic child abuse at all. Maybe it's cosmic suicide, I don't know. <laughs> if that's such a thing, I mean, what are we talking about? These people be, I mean, I've been watching too much stuff. Here's what Jesus, here's what it says about Jesus in Hebrews 5, 7 through 9. Listen to this. 
Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears. Think about that. This is Jesus. Offering up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Jesus, though. To him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Listen to this, verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. All whose godliness is in Christ. He became the source of eternal salvation. Jesus, God, said, all right. In order to save all the people who are genuinely saved, who are sitting in this room, I choose persecution. I choose suffering so that they will not be persecuted by the Father and suffer from the Father. So I'll choose it. I'll be brutally beaten. It's going to be real. Jesus said it. Why have you forsaken me? It was real. He was in the garden saying, Father, take this cup from me. As it got closer to that moment, he felt it. But he learned obedience through what he suffered. You learn obedience through what you suffer. You learn how to handle pain and still believe. Yesterday at the, um, at the metamorphosis event, I was sitting down, and me and his, uh, Lou was talking. He was the DJ. And, uh, and I saw this boy, like a teenage boy and girl playing around, and she started running. And I, he started running, and I was like, oh, he's going to fall. I could tell by just the way his feet were working. And he was a little chubby, so when you chubby, you know your own, right? So I was like, oh, man, he's going to fall. If you know, you know, right? I was like, oh, man, he's going to fall. And within three seconds after I said that, boom, 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 boom. And when you chubby, you fall and bounce a little bit. So he, he slipped forward. I felt bad. I was like, oh, man. Bleeding, knee was scraped up. Tooth got chipped, came out. People ran over to him. Mike went over there. Maria went over there. Had on some glasses. They was three feet in front of him. Took him a couple minutes, but he got up. He was walking with a limp, scraped. Just prayed briefly for him. Lord, please have mercy on him. But you know what he learned after that? I better be careful how I run on concrete. And maybe I shouldn't chase people with these clogs on. I bet you the next time somebody runs again, he'll be like, nah, I'm going to chase you. <laughs> he learned. Jesus learned. We learn through what we suffer. We learn that we can take a hit and still believe. Godliness is connected to persecution because Jesus chose it. 
Second reason why godliness is connected to, to Jesus and persecution is connected to persecution. Christ is connected to persecution. Second reason, because we're being conformed to Jesus. Everyone's favorite verse is Romans 8, 28. You know, for God works all things together for good for those who love him, for those who were called according to Christ Jesus. And for most people, that means whatever you desire and pray for, God's going to give it to you because it's good. That is not what that verse means. They forget about verse 29. They forget about Romans 8, 29. It says this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed, to be made like, to be conformed to the image of his son. So God isn't just giving you what you want because you think it's good. God's giving you what you need to conform you to the image of his son. So sometimes what I think is good is not good for God, to God. You ever had somebody feel like, man, I just feel like God's not answering prayer. Fam, no is an answer. So, <laughs> his promises are yes and amen, but that doesn't mean our requests are. We be acting like, man, God's just not answering my prayers. Well, fam, he probably said no and just keep it moving. No is an answer, right? We're being conformed to the image of his son. We're made to be like him. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, listen to what it says. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A favorite offering and sacrifice to God. It says be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. Colossians 2, 6 and 7 says this. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. So as you receive Christ, so walk in him. Brothers and sisters, I am convinced. And I'm convinced of this and will be convinced of this until I die. I am convinced that what has happened to the church in America at least is that we forgot that we're imitating someone. Yeah. Jesus. We forgot that. We treat Christianity like it's about being a good person instead of imitating the one person that's good according to God. We've forgotten this. So Christianity has become moral assimilation rather than Messiah imitation. And when that happens, when you think your faith is about just being a good person, guess what? You can be persuaded that other faiths are also on the same level because we're all technically trying to be good people. There's no religions that are like, go kill everybody. If they are, they probably have a few members. <laughs> and stay away from them. We're all trying to be good people. Why do you think that bumper sticker coexists? Exists. Right? All the different religions. Why? Because we all evaluate Religion based on moralism. Well, I can be a good person. Islam says good things. Buddhism says good things. Why is Christianity the only way? Everyone is trying to be a good person. And if you evaluate moralism and religion, then essentially, yeah, we all are very similar. We mock at Jehovah's Witness for knocking on doors, sharing their faith. And aren't we supposed to do that? Muslims pray five times a day. Do we do that? When's the last time you prayed five times a day? 
And not because it was a ritual, but because you just felt compelled to. I ain't shaming you, I'm just asking you. When you evaluate the religion of Christianity, yeah, it's, in terms of moralism, we're all pretty similar. And so the church becomes an institution then of moralism. But the church is not supposed to be another institution. It's supposed to be the only imitation. We're not supposed to be good people. We're supposed to be godly in Christ. We're supposed to imitate a person. But sadly today in large swaths of Christianity in the American church, it's been reduced to who's a better good person instead of who's more like Jesus. This is what happens. It's not about being like Jesus. It's about not being like them. So if you think you're a better good person than that person, then you're satisfied. You're good. You're good. You don't need to do much else because you're a better good person than them. And that is what Christianity in America has been reduced to. If I think I'm a better good person than you, it doesn't bother me that I'm not like him. As long as I'm better than you. And this is what's happening. This is why we rarely get offended at our own sin, but will sinfully treat others according to their sin against us. Because your Christianity is about being better than your spouse, about being better than your coworker. It's about being better than your political opponent. It's about being better than this person that you don't like. It's about being better than that person. It's not about being like Jesus. It's about being better than this person. Because if it was about being like Jesus, then you would realize that your bitterness and your anger and your sinful judgment do not imitate him. So we're satisfied with a lot of sin in our lives, a lot of selfishness, a lot of selfish ambition, because we're better than this person. But that's not Christianity in America has been reduced to who's the better person. I'm a better good person than you. So? <laughs> there are people in this room even. This is your biggest issue. This is why you don't honor the Lord in some of the ways that you live. Offended, easily offended, this and that. Treat people like you. Your Christianity is compared. It's like if you sin against me, then I'm sinning against you. It's not like, you know what? Even though they started this argument, once I argue back, sin back, I'm culpable before God. I'm not imitating the Lord. Our obedience is connected to how we're treated more than how Jesus was treated at the cross. Christianity is about who's a better good person, not who's more like him. And some of us, in all honesty, are not that impressed with being like him because we're better than other people that, and you can always find somebody that you're better than. This is what's happening. We compare ourselves to superficial things like, well, who did they vote for? Do you, do you listen to secular music? How charismatic are you in the gifts? How do they dress? Man, look at her shirt. 
Is your church non-denominational or is it denominational? We compare ourselves to what sins people struggle with. Well, I don't do that. I jokingly said to y'all in my last sermon, yeah, you're right. You might not be fat like me, but you're fat on the inside. Obese with the bitterness, right? Chubby with the self-righteousness. Right? Plump. <laughs> Don't make me laugh. Don't make me laugh. Don't make me laugh, but y'all making me laugh. It's been a while. I'm trying to talk to y'all. I'm rusty. Don't make me laugh. Plump with the slander. Need to lose a little weight with all the complaining that you're doing. We compare ourselves to that. We compare ourselves to how their kids act versus our kids. We compare ourselves to who served the church. What did they do to serve the church? You know who else did that, ironically? The Pharisees. That's what they did. They said, hey, I'm a better good person than you, Jesus. Abraham is our father. So who is your Christianity imitating? Who is your Christianity imitating? Or better, who are you comparing your Christianity to? Who are you comparing it to? Because as long as, if it's not to, to Jesus, you will always find ways to continue with mediocrity and faithfulness rather than faithfulness. You'll be faithful in some areas, we all are, but will not be tripping in other areas that you could give attention to because you don't feel like you need to because your Christianity is not about imitating God. It's about not being like them. And that is a Christless Christianity. Lastly, third reason why godliness in Christ is connected to persecution. Because persecution, suffering, it separates the faithful from the faithless. It separates. It separates the faithful from the faithless. Listen, everybody believes until they suffer. Everybody believes until they suffer. God is a good God. As long as he does things that we think are good to us. That's why you never hear people confused at the blessings of God. You don't hear nobody walking away from the Lord like, man, listen, hey, man, I'm just I'm not a Christian anymore. What happened? I was just blessed by the Lord too much. I thought he was answering my <laughs> prayers. I felt like he gave me the job I prayed for. He gave me the house that I wanted. He was answering my prayers. I can't trust a God like that. Like, why would a good God give me good things? Right. That's something you never hear somebody say. And if you do, you know that, like, let's have a cup of coffee. Something's wrong, fam, right? Let's talk. You been, you been taking any CBD or anything like that? Fam? No one is confused at the blessings from God. Unbelievers will stand up receiving the award and be like, none of this would happen except from the man upstairs. Who is the man upstairs? 
They'll at least take some semblance in, hey, when God gives good things, I'm going to praise him. But when tragedy comes in, how would God, why did God allow this to happen? Persecution reveals what you believe and trust in. It comes to the surface. It comes to the surface. Persecution separates the faithful from the faithless. And everyone's faith will be tested. Remember this in Genesis 22, 9 through 12, where Abraham was told to go kill Isaac. Remember that? And so Abraham goes up. This was Isaac, the one son that he was promised. He wasn't promised Ishmael. Ishmael, he made on his own. He was promised Isaac. And then God said, all right, I want you to go sacrifice Isaac. And so they go up to the mountain, and here's what it says. When they came to the place, beginning in verse 9, when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar and there and laid the wood in order and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, this is a crazy passage, and we're not going to get into all the, the angel talking and then saying, you didn't hold your son from me, the angel, but that's a different conversation. But he's saying, look, so wait a minute. God, you didn't know that he really believed in you? You made all these promises to him? And said that all this, that he was going to have as many seeds as offspring as the stars in the sky? You didn't know already that he trusted you and loved you and believed in you? But it was when he was willing to kill his son? That's when you knew? Of course not. But he's making a point, which James speaks to thousands of years later on. In James 2, 19 through 22, James says this. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder because they're afraid. Do you, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is, is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. Now, now keep in mind, that in Genesis 15, about 20-something years prior to that scene in Genesis 22, that God told Abraham and said that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But James is saying here that his faith, that righteousness, worked itself out in his actual obedience. What Abraham didn't know was that he was imitating God because God would kill his son. And the fact that he was willing to kill his son, God was like, all right, you that dude, you him. True faith cost Jesus his life. And true faith will cost you yours. I do not mean that someone will kill you because you're a Christian. That will happen to some. I mean that because you're a Christian, you're going to kill yourself. You're going to die 
to the habits and patterns and thinking and actions that are not like Jesus. But if your Christianity is about being better than other people, you'll be satisfied with all the sins that you keep. Your bitterness will be justified. Your self-righteousness will be justified. Your sinful judgments will be justified because in your mind, you're still better than whoever else. Your comparison is not Christ. It's culture. You will always be godlier than people in the culture. You will never rarely be convicted by the character of the culture. And you're not supposed to be. You're supposed to be convicted by the character of Christ. For some, persecution is too high of a cost. So they'll walk away or stay immature. I mean, isn't it it's crazy to say, you know, you can be persecuted by other believers for being loving to some people. Like, you'll be persecuted by other believers because you were loving to their, their political opponents. You'll be loving to this particular community. You know why? Because in, in today's Christian, in modern Christianity, love is connected to approval. It's connected to approval. So if, I lo- if I'm loving to these people, then I'm approving of what they did. That's not biblical at all. Jesus didn't approve of a lot of things that people did, but he still served them. Jesus still blessed them. He still healed them. But you'll be persecuted by other believers just for simply being loving. That's how far away we've gotten from biblical Christianity. And by that I mean faith and obedience that is imitating God. We're far away. And people are uncomfortable when they say it. So people get mad at me when I say stay balanced and I challenge this side and that side. But I also acknowledge where I'm trying to grow too. God is not looking for good people. He's looking for godly people. Good is comparing yourself to the culture. Godly is comparing yourself to Christ. This happens all the time in marriages. People are offended, and you're offended, and you feel justified in your offense, and you will hold on to that offense for a long time and have significant consequences in your marriage because you're not concerned that your attitude, actions, and thoughts are not imitating him. You just think, well, you're not being like your spouse, and you missed a point. People will be offended at their, their employers, be offended at unbelievers, that are acting like unbelievers. I told a friend of mine, hey, bro, you got a bigger platform. Tell people to stop making videos about Beyonce and about Taylor Swift's tour. They don't love the Lord. Like, what are you, why are you critiquing them when they're doing what they're supposed to do? I could care less what song Cardi B makes. Now, if Cardi B says, I'm a believer, then we got a different, we got a different story. We're offended at all these things, and we find goodness in them. We compare ourselves to the culture, and we're satisfied. We compare ourselves to our spouses or to other people in our small groups, and we think, well, I don't struggle with that. 
And then you think, hey, I'm good. You're right, you are good. But are you godly, though? Are you godly? And some of you are not. And you're okay with it. So this series is not about information. It's about transformation. I don't care about impressing you with details from the Bible. I care about saying things that will change you because of the Bible. And I am included. This series is not about me to you. It's him to us. I'm just the mouthpiece. We're supposed to be godly, not good. So indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. This is a truth you must believe until you leave. But what does that persecution look like? And that's what we'll do next week. Let's pray. Father, I hope they're still glad I'm back. <laughs> you've, been, you've been a wonderful to us, Lord. You've been amazing to us. But you've also shown me in my own life and in the lives of us that it's easy to be impressed or with information, to be excited about what new things we now see from the Bible. But you're not impressed with the knowledge. You're impressed with wisdom. You're not impressed with our information. You desire our application. You don't want us to compare ourselves to others. You want us to compare ourselves to you. We are not imitators of culture or our favorite Christian influencer. We're imitators of you, Jesus. And so I pray as we do this series, what we must believe, we believe until you leave, I pray that, that we would take what we've learned about the severity of spiritual warfare, how serious it is, and that we would apply it to our lives so that we're able to, by your grace, for your glory, be imitators of you. That's what your word says. This isn't my perspective. We were saved to imitate you. We were saved to be godly, not good. So, Lord, may this series help us to become that. Take us places we didn't know. Show us things we didn't expect to see. And help us grow in ways that are godly. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Hey, no questions? Brothers, right now. Yeah. Good, let's go, let's go, let's go. All right, let's go, let's go, let's go. Let's go. Y'all should have put him in. Let's go. Go to communion. Let's go. Listen, the Lord knows. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. He knows how I am, and he knows what I'm like when I come back, and so do you. If you don't have a question, hey, it's good to see y'all. I love y'all. I miss y'all. Looking forward to Wednesday night, one another, but I ain't staying any longer.
If there ain't a question, we're going to move on. That's not a question, and that's a suggestion to keep going. Get your elements. Listen, all this talk, whether it was aggressive, whatever it was to you, all this talk is really rooted in Jesus' sacrifice. It's rooted in Jesus didn't die on the cross just for the sake of proving something to himself or to the Father or to the divine counsel. He died on the cross for people. And the expectation is that we would be willing to experience what he experienced. We walk as he walked. That we do things because we love. I mean, if I'm being honest with you, I think, and we'll talk about this next week, that's, the, that's what I think Jesus is saying about your first love in Ephesians. Everyone thinks it's about what works did you do. No, it said your first love, then you do works. We've forgotten that we love Jesus and we just want to be like the Lord. We've turned into just moralism. Our Christianity has become moral. It's about not being better than this person or not doing this. It doesn't matter if we're imitating him. And too many of us, and I love you too much to just pretend like because you like this series that I'm sweet. I'm grateful for that. You know it. I'm grateful. I love this church dearly. But I love you enough to make sure that we're not just to challenge what I think is not just here. I think it's a lot of places. But I don't pastor a lot of people. I pastor right here. While I'm grateful for all the comments I get on YouTube, I'm not their pastor. I'm not trying to be America's pastor. I'm just trying to be solid rocks. But I have a burden to make sure that we are godly and not just good. And that we're trying to compare ourselves to him. And so that we'll go after the things that we see in us that are not like him. For that reason, that we don't ignore them because, well, we're still better than them. That's not what Jesus died for. He died to forgive us, then live in us so that we would imitate him. So, Father, we recognize that this aspect that we do every Sunday, it is somewhat ritualistic for us. But it's not ritualistic in meaning. It's just we do it consistently enough to be seen as a function of our church. But it's a function of our faith. It's a reminder of what you've done for us so that we can strive to be more like you. So, Lord, we eat this remembering that your body was broken on our behalf so that when we're persecuted, when we're broken on some level, we remember that your body was broken first. We eat this together. And Lord, we drink this remembering that it was your blood that was shed for us so that when we bleed a little blood, when we're cut a little bit, when we're hurt, we remember that it was your blood that was shed for us and that when we're persecuted, we're just imitating you. We drink this. Lord, may this series help us grow. May we apply the beautiful information that we've learned. And not that we haven't been. Many people have. This isn't that we haven't been. Lord, you know that more than I do. But we want to make sure that we're holistically going after the, this stuff. Because Satan is not playing. He's real. And he's going to come after us. He's going to, he's going to oppose us. And so let's, next week, Lord, as we look at these three particular ways that we're persecuted, May they shape us and help us to prepare us
for the spiritual warfare that we're already in, whether we believe it or not. So we thank you, Lord, for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you, and we'll see you Wednesday night.